The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, October 11th, the cold turkey edition. I'm Gabriel Roth. I'm an editor at Slate, and I'm the father of Leo, age four, and Eliza, who is seven. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. I'm a journalist and podcaster in New Hampshire, and I am mom to Henry, who is 17, Teddy, who's 15 and a half, and a stepdaughter, Lily, who is 18. And I'm Carvel Wallace, a writer and podcaster in Oakland, California, and I'm the father to Georgia, who is 13, and Ezra, who is 15. Today on our show, we've got a question about yelling! Sorry, we've got a question about yelling, <laughs> and another about a kid who made a mean joke about his teacher's weight. Plus, as always, we'll have triumphs and fails. We'll have recommendations. And on Slate Plus, I've got a question, and hopefully Carvel and Rebecca can give me some advice. First up, though, it's triumphs and fails. Rebecca, your turn. Triumph or fail? I've got a triumph, and um, it's... I don't know. I, this is one of those ones where I had to really think about whether or not it could be considered a triumph, but I felt like it had a good outcome and I felt like it was an opportunity for conversation. Uh, and that is that I have figured out that um, it is really important to talk about privilege all the time with my white privileged sons, not because they behave in a way that makes me worry uh, that they're not aware of their privilege specifically. But they also kind of do. And it's kind of the world is kind of built for them. And I am constantly finding myself, I think, especially in the wake of the Kavanaugh hearings, just like wanting to start these conversations all the time. And I the other day, um, Henry had his first college interview this week, and it was one of those alumni interviews. And he got an email from one of the colleges he's going to be applying to, and they said, oh, it's alumni interview time. Click here to find your local alumni rep and, you know, talk to that person. So he's, you know, being recruited a little bit. And we were talking through the night before we went out to dinner, and we were talking through what he was going to say. And he was just, you know, asking if we could, you know, practice a little bit. And I realized that a lot of his questions for this interviewer were kind of aligned around sell me on your school. And I was like, you know, this is a really good opportunity to talk about privilege. Uh, so we, I, I decided to pivot the conversation. It was sort of like a light, ended up being sort of a life lesson conversation, but also one about privilege where, you know, first of all, you know, you have to sort of understand that, like, even if you think you're going to get in someplace, even if you think you're being recruited someplace, you still have to behave as if you are lucky to even be having this conversation. You still have to uh, really ask critical, curious questions that aren't geared toward what you can do for me, but that you have to really be thoughtful about who you are and whether or not somebody would be interested in having you be part of their community. And we kind of talked this through and throughout the conversation and Henry was like, okay, ask me this question, ask me this question. And then he was, you know, giving us his answers. And I was this huge shift in his answers from, um, you know, I'm really interested in this school because geographically it's where I want to be. And because the course of study, it's where I want to be. And because, you know, I sort of look at the student profile and it seems really aligned with my interests and a way less about sort of the assumption that he would fit and, and more about answering questions in a way that are designed to show a thoughtfulness about how he might not fit and how he knows that he's fortunate to be even having this conversation. Um, anyway, it was just a very interesting exercise and, and one that really, once again, kind of opened that can, like really clearly 
not every kid has, you know, uh, their own computer and can fill out all these online forms and they start getting these recruitment emails. Really clearly, not every kid is, you know, goes to a high school that has like a rigorous uh, college prep a public high school that has a college prep situation where they're even on these lists to get these recruitment opportunities. Really clearly, he is a white kid with a good GPA who's had a tremendous amount of opportunities and is going to be kind of like just putting himself in front of people more often and having the opportunity to talk to people more often than other kids in America. And it's just something that I just very consciously have decided I want him to think about in every conversation he has around this college process. And I think the triumph is that he seemed to get it and really lean into it. And uh, we had our sort of second conversation before he was going to this interview. And then he told me about how it went afterwards. And it really sounds like he like really got it, like really, really, really got it. So that I mean, I, I know it's kind of oblique, but again, it's just one of these ways where what's happening in the world is just invading these things that just seem like they were on the calendar and they were coming and just opening up opportunities to talk. And I, I think that's really important. Is there a way in which awareness of privilege and appropriate humility in the in the face of one's own privilege is itself a form of privilege? Absolutely. It's just like how, you know, the choice to live in one of those fancy tiny houses is a, is a form of privilege, right? The person who can afford to throw away all their stuff and move into a 900 square foot house because they think it's an adorable way to live, like that's a super privileged choice. It's not a choice born out of necessity, like I can only afford the tiny house. It absolutely is. And I, I, you know, and this is, again, it's a multi-layered conversation in that way, too. And it's the, and that what you just said is exactly the kind of conversation I'm, I'm trying to have, like the sort of authenticity, the not the humble, I'm not as good as other people thing. I mean, the bottom line is some kids are better than other kids at certain things, and it's OK to talk about those things. But it's also important when you're in these situations to know that it's an opportunity and it's not and it's not something that you just by default get. You know what I mean? It's to me that's like super duper important and I think that when you are a kid and you're applying to colleges and you have your list, and I think that when you have safety schools on your list and stretch schools on your list and schools on your list that are just sort of maybe outside the box that you haven't thought about, and I think too when you apply for a job as a kid or an adult, when you have a conversation with someone about a job, you have to really like lean into to it like it's the, it's the thing you want the most and you have to think about it that way. And I don't think with this college recruitment process, kids are being set up to think that way. They're, they're getting mail that's basically sales material. Um, and granted, it doesn't guarantee admission, but it's sort of the, the message implied is always like, we want you. We want you. We want you. We want you. And I, I just think that that's wrong. I think it's the wrong way to approach it, especially when you're talking to a human being about what your future may or may not look like. Yeah, this is good. This feels like a triumph yeah. on the order of um, teaching table manners. Like, I would love it. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it if I could teach my kid. That would be a real triumph is when I come in here and I tell you that, like, Eliza is not, like, picking up her omelet with her hands or something huh. like that. Um, and it's a triumph. My kids to... have that. I, I got I to gotta find out how I remember how I did that. Yeah. My kids have that, and I don't remember how. I'm going to be totally honest with you. <laughs> please, please let me know. All right. Um I, I have a small triumph. I have a triumph from uh, yesterday, Monday. No, 
I have a triumph from Monday of this week, which uh, you may recall was Indigenous Peoples Day, uh, and which as a result, my kids did not have school and I did not have to come into work. And my wife, on the other hand, did have to come into work. And so we was going to, you know, we were going to hang out on Monday. And uh, I had made plans with uh, the mom of, of friends of theirs. They have now another set of matching friends where there's a daughter, Eliza's age, and a boy in, in uh, Leo's class. And, and it feels really good. And uh, so we were going to go to the Museum of Natural History. And then in the morning, uh, he had a fever. Leo had a fever. So we can't go to the Museum of Natural History. And instead, we went to the pediatrician. And he has Coxsackie virus, which sucks. And um, it was all shaping up to be a horrible day. And I decided it was not going to be a horrible day. It was going to be a sick day, but it was going to be a fun sick day. And we had a pretty fun sick day. We, um, you know, you can achieve this triumph pretty easily if you just are willing to bend a lot of rules. So we, he, every time he had to take his Tylenol, then they each had a small dish of ice cream and he had his Tylenol mixed into that. And then we like listened to a bunch of stories and we did some drawing and we watched some videos and we, but we like, we all stayed in good spirits all day, even though the three of us were stuck in the house, except for when we were in the pediatrician's waiting room. Um, and he's now on the mend. Uh, he's not back at school, but um, he, he, his fever is way down. Um, so that's my triumph. Uh, Carvel, what about you? Triumph or fail? Mm, I think it might be a fail. Um, we uh, This weekend, Georgia spent the weekend at a friend's house, and she um, was gone, like, fr- like, I think Friday... St- and Saturday night, she was at two different friends' houses, partially because Joe and I were both somewhat out of town and we overlapped on Fridays. But there was like 10 hours on Friday when neither of us were in town. So I got back Friday night, but Georgia already had a sleepover scheduled. Saturday, I picked her up. Or Saturday, she had another sleepover. I picked her up Sunday. Um, and then on Monday night, we got a text from the mother of one of the kids that she had a sleepover with. And the mother was very upset and perturbed. Apparently, Georgia had taken this girl's phone who's like her friend and texted something to a boy like uh i like you i want to like something probably sexual with him and uh and the mother found out because the boy's mother found out and then approached and kind of like unleashed on the girl who she thought had sent this text and then the girl was really scared so she went to her mother and then it came out that Georgia had actually been the one that sent the text without knowledge or DM whatever without knowledge from her friend and so we got this text being like I'm really concerned this is inappropriate so on and so forth and I was like she did what now and so we had this we had to like talk to Georgia and like you know it was like a whole thing it's Joe found out first I was still at work and so Joe and Georgia were having basically having intense stuff over it Georgia was really upset and crying and she felt really both guilty but also unfairly blamed because she was like we like me and my friends do this all the time we always take each other's phones and text stuff like hilariously and someone had dared me to do it and so on and so forth and it was one of those things where she thought she was doing something funny and was completely unaware of what the potential actual consequences were and how many other people got involved and uh and this apparently this boy's mother was like really offended by the idea and was like i can't believe that eighth graders are saying these kinds of things and then and then 
that made the other parent's mother, George's friend's mother, like feel really upset and attacked. And so she then came to us and, and Joe felt really upset and attacked. And parent, all, all the parents had feelings. And uh, so I got on the phone with Georgia and we had this conversation and I was like, what happened? And she said, I didn't know. I just like someone dared me. I'm not going to even say who dared me because I don't want to bring another person into this. This is such a mess. And like and me and my friend are fine. Like I apologized, and she was like, it's fine. And, like we do this all the time. And it was like annoying. And she wishes I hadn't done it. But she gets that we were just playing around. But now all the parents are mad and everyone hates me and everyone thinks I'm terrible. And my friend's parents won't don't like they hate me. And she probably doesn't want me to come over ever. And like, blah, blah, blah. And it was this whole thing. And so. I had to like talk with her about like, well, you know, one of the things that happens in life is that we do something thinking we know what the consequences are, but then the consequences end up being way bigger than we thought. And that's a mistake that we make a lot in life. And we had to have this conversation about like, you know, why the fact that someone dared you is like completely not like if someone dared me to shoot someone, <laughs> I did shoot them. I couldn't go to the judge and be like, well, your honor, as you <laughs> as you may know, I was dared. So your, your honor, he you know, double like the, dog dared me. <laughs> Yeah, surely you understand. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. And so like having this conversation about taking personal responsibility for the choices you make versus what, you know, and uh, and she was like really I mean, she was like really apologetic and really upset. And she it was like she felt like the parents had really got like gotten all out of control over it and that it wasn't as big a deal among the kids as it was among the parents. And then I try, sort of I try to explain like that is one of the things that happens. That's actually a real thing. That's not the fact that, you know, you have to take that as like an actual thing that happens because it is. And I explained that parents are really protective of their kids. And one of the ways that parents are super protective is they get really mad at other kids who they feel like have put their kids in harm's way. And so you put your friend in the harm's way in terms of the wrath of this other mother who then, and so this, this, your friend's mother is going to get really mad at you. And that's the thing you're going to have to sort out. And, uh, and then, uh, so, you I mean, it was just, it, but it was, it was the thing that makes it, I think something of a fail. I mean, I think it was a really bad decision on George's part to do this. And I think that there's probably I think George is one of those good kids who does who does bad things and like more of that stuff will come to light as she makes her way through adolescence. But it's the second time in the last six months that another kid's parent has had a specific problem with George's behavior. Hmm. The last time it was not it was like a some interpersonal beef happened between all these kids and somehow the like this mother came to the belief that Georgia was the ringleader of it, which I'm like, well, that's interesting. Maybe you were. She was like, no, I wasn't. It was this and that. And we're still friends. And the mother just took it out of control. And I'm like, that may be true. That may not be true. But like, I kind of said that thing to Georgia, like if you're dealing with one asshole, it's probably them. But if you're dealing with three assholes, it's probably you. And I'm like, Mm. this is the second time that a parent's come to us and been like, I have a specific problem with the way that your daughter is like interacting with the world, interacting with my kid. And, you know, I'm like, it can't just be every parent is crazy and overprotective it may be that you're making bad decisions and so i think she's like thinking about that and turning it over and it's like georgia does the good kid thing so well and i mean she is a good kid both my kids are good kids it's not like who's it's not like bad kids but um but i think that she's beginning to have some of her like more secretive stuff exposed and it'll be interesting to see what more happens with that so I mean, I consider it something of a fail because it's like uh, I'm aware that my daughter is out there probably doing things a little bit shadier than she would like us to know about. Hmm. I think about this all the time. And this is like one of the things that's sort of like built into the code of my kids when they go out into the world is like, 
you want to be the kid that I mean, you you don't want to be the kid that other parents don't want you to hang their kids to hang. Out <laughs> right. right. Like that's so much scarier than being the kid that other kids don't like, right? At least to a parent that's scarier. To me it's like I I would way rather have a kid that other kids didn't like than have a kid that other kids parents didn't want them to hang out with because I then mean, that puts you on the spot as a parent when your other parents like reach out to you. It's like all you can do is apologize, and but you still yeah. feel like there's more going on, and this is like so bad. It feels yeah, worse. Yeah, I mean I don't that is the, that does. is the thing. I mean, we get that a lot because, like, we, I mean, <laughs> I mean, with Ezra, we get it from teachers because every year since Ezra has been in kindergarten, we've had at least one phone call from every teacher has ever had being like, "Ezra's such a great kid, but he just won't pay attention to class. He's distracting other students." And so at this point, it's been ten years this kid has been in school, so we've had like thirty of these phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> and every, like we, we're at a point where we're just like literally. I don't know what to tell you. That's just the way he is. Yes, he's, <laughs> let me get this straight. He's not doing his work in class. Can't believe it. We we can't. You know, like, but there's that feeling of like when it was younger. Joe and I were just talking about this because we just had one of these phone calls last week. And Joe and I would, when we were later processing it, we were both laughing at how how when he was in like second and third grade, we would feel so defensive, like we had to fix it. Like an adult was saying. Something is wrong with your kid. You need to fix it. And how we would be like, uh, like scrambling to try and basically people please this other adult. And how as the time has progressed, how much that's changed, how much we're like, hey, I don't know what to tell you. Like, good luck. <laughs> like, if you can figure out how to make him do work, let us know. And um, but with Georgia, we don't get that a lot. Definitely not, definitely not in school. Occasionally she had this one beef with her computer teacher. And I think that whatever i have my own thoughts about how that happened but um but uh she had but overall she doesn't get a whole lot of stuff but she is starting to i am starting to see that her she's got this way of going about stuff that is a little bit bullheaded a little bit maybe a little bit manipulative i'm not sure yet maybe keeping an eye on it definitely can be a little bit shady and i think that the things are i think some of that stuff is starting to catch up with her and um, it is interesting to see how she's going to, like, f- deal with that, you know, because, like, teenagers are people who are dealing with their own character defects and they're, for- they're learning what they are and then learning what they mean in the world and then figuring out how to adjust. Um, but that feeling of defensiveness that you have as a parent, because the-, the subtext of all these parental emails is you need to fix your child. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, we're obviously trying, but like, <laughs> I mean, it's not like we're not trying. So I don't know what to tell you kind of thing. Like, we'll keep working on it, but like, I can't make I can't fix it for you right now kind of thing. It's embarrassing. It would help it if is. you lightened up, lady. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and, and what was really funny is that Joe then got it because one of the things I said, I was like, well, maybe this friend's mother doesn't have to be the one dealing with this boy's mom. We should deal with that since it, it is our kid that sent the text. And Joe was like, that's that's a good idea. And so when Joe called back or got into another conversation with the mother of the friend, she said that the mother of the friend, her tone was entirely different the second time around. The first time it was all apoplectic and like, this is very troubling and I'm very disturbed and that kind of language that people use. And 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 then the second time she said she talked to her that she was like a lot more like it's not that big a deal. And so I think uh, maybe the other thing you have to factor in is every other she parent's saw all the set other of personality texts that her daughter had been like, sending. <laughs> what'd you say? <laughs> she saw all the other texts that her daughter had been sending and realized this one was nothing compared to what her <laughs> maybe, kid was yeah. actually doing. Yeah, I mean, the other thing you have to factor in always is like the other... Other parents, over, like you said, sometimes overreaction, sometimes not overreaction. The other parents, insecurities, doubts, fears. It just gets messy, you know, in adolescence. 
um, when you have it like get other parents involved, and there's a lot of personalities at play. So it's also one of those things where, way. like, as, as soon as you signal to them that you are concerned and apologetic, they can kind of step down a little bit. Totally. Like, right. like the worry right. if you're the other parents is, well, this girl is an asshole, and her parents are probably assholes too, and it's a whole family <laughs> exactly. of assholes that we have to deal with. Exactly. And, and as right. soon as exactly. you show them that that's not the case, then they kind of they can take a deep breath. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's probably that's probably true too. Before we move on, let's do the business. As always, if you have a question, you can leave us a message at 424-255-7833. We love getting your voice on the show. Or uh, you can email us at slate.com and uh, we'll have someone here read your question. Also, if you're not yet a member of our Facebook group, what are you waiting for? Go to Facebook and search for Slate Parenting, and uh, you will find a lively, active, and um, largely extremely friendly community of other parents uh, sharing their own triumphs and fails, asking for and receiving advice, and uh, much more. Um, so that's Facebook. Search for Slate Parenting. On Slate Plus today, I have a question for Carvel and Rebecca uh, about the constant cry in my home, that's not fair. How much fairness is the right amount of fairness between siblings? And uh, how can I possibly provide an appropriate amount of fairness? If you want to hear that segment and uh, another similar segment every week on every single episode of this show, you should be a member of Slate Plus. Uh, go to slate.com slash plus. It's just $35 for your first year. You get a bonus segment every week. No ads, this podcast, all our other podcasts, a whole bunch of stuff. It's a great program. Check it out. Slate.com slash mom and dad plus. Okay, let's go. All right. Uh, let's take some questions. This first question came to us uh, on our voicemail line. You can call us on that very same voicemail line at 424-255-7833. Uh, but this week you didn't. Kim did. Let's hear from Kim. Hi, my name is Kim. Um, I have a question regarding yelling at my children. I have an 8-year-old and a 4-year-old and a 13-month-old. The 8-year-old has what I would call ADD light. He has trouble focusing and truly does not respond to me unless I say his name multiple times, has difficulty following direction. Uh, so the 4-year-old also has some difficulties. Uh, he has a significant speech delay and um, constant tantrum throwing, things of that nature. So the reason I'm calling is because I'm not naturally a yeller, but I feel like my children have turned me into one. And it seems like increasingly the only way I can get them to listen to me is by raising my voice. Um, it's not even something that I consciously started out to do, but over the years, I have turned into a terrible yeller. And I hate it. It's soul-sucking, I think, for all of us. Me, you know, their father, who also yells at them, he's in the same trap as me, um, and we just can't seem to see our, our way out of this. I know it's not good for them. Um, and I just need some strategies um, to use to try to get their attention um, and to do the things that we're directing them to do without raising our voices. Thank you so much. Bye. 
I could have left this voicemail several years ago, about 15, between 10 and 15 years ago. It could have very easily been me. Uh, When my kids were four and six, it was right after my divorce. I was living with them alone uh, in a new house. And I realized how I had brought yelling with me from my old house to my new house. And just like this caller, I knew it wasn't good for them. I knew it wasn't working. And I wanted strategies to not do it anymore. And the only strategy that I was able to land on that worked was to go complete cold turkey, no yelling. To this day, I do not yell. And am I saying that like I have never yelled? No, I can I can probably count on my hand one hand in the last since the kids were four and six. So that's 11 years ago, probably on one hand where I've lost it and really and really raised my voice. It does not work better than talking to yell. And you just have to know that and decide it and do it cold turkey because a huge part of the reason why you're yelling is to get your kids to do what you want them to do in the moment or to correct them in the moment or to uh, get through something where you feel like they're not listening to you. Yelling is no different than talking to convey those messages. What has to change is that you have to realize you've described two kids uh, who are sort of wired in such a way where it's not that they are choosing to not do things, they won't do things, but they actually can't do them. And so your expectation that if you yell, they'll pay attention, that's actually on you. And the, the, the delivery device of yelling is not changing the situation, that it is actually more difficult for your kids to pay attention than it might be for two other kids. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with your kids. They just wired slightly differently and they have like a different way of processing information. And if you stop yelling, you're still going to have to ask the same question or say the name three or four times. You're just not going to be yelling when you're doing it. And you will feel better. They will feel better. They will throw fewer tantrums. They will start yelling less. It is amazing how going cold turkey can truly change the tenor of all of the interactions in your household, especially the most frustrating ones, because just like when you are in you know, therapy and you're really, really depressed and your therapist might say, you know, the act of smiling can actually like stimulate those things in your brain that actually make you feel better. The act of not yelling, which starts out as a conscious act, but then later just becomes your default setting actually can make things feel calmer, even when you are in exactly the same situation with the same frustrations, with the same roadblocks you're in now. Just not yelling about them will make the whole thing feel better, and you will start to be able to pick and choose which things matter and which things don't, because everything will be quieter all the time. So do you have to say your son's name four times to get him to come to dinner? Is that super important, or is that just the pattern of what it takes to get him to come to dinner? Uh, If he's running into the road and you do deploy a yell, guess what? Like, he'll actually probably pay attention because you don't yell, like, ever. So when you do, it will actually be more meaningful. So I'm sorry it's not easier than that, but I really do think the only way to to do this if you really want to stop yelling is to stop yelling. Just go completely cold turkey. Try to get your husband to commit to the same. Uh, My guess is that if you can't get him to commit to the same, he will eventually, by default, have to commit to the same because when one person is really committed to not yelling and the other person still is a yeller, they end up feeling really badly about themselves like pretty quickly uh, and they end up kind of becoming a not yeller too by default and shame. Um, but that's my advice. Go cold turkey. Commit to it. See what happens. Give it time and and start parsing out for yourself 
what things matter and what things don't. Because I'm guessing a lot of the things that are immediately getting into that heightened sense, that heightened reaction, don't matter as much as you think they do in the aggregate. So the cold turkey idea seems great to me that like if you have a bad habit and, and you've begun doing it reflexively, then like making a firm unbreakable rule for yourself and, and uh, just sticking to that rule seems like the, the, the first step. I you wanna... have to tell the kids too, though. I mean, I would say to tell them because oh. that's they you have to tell them that's what you're doing. Yeah. As, a, as an enforcement mechanism it, for yourself. Now, if you yell, you're breaking a promise that you've made to your children. Exactly. That and they get great. to buy into it too. That seems great. Love that idea. The thing I will push back on is the idea that yelling is not at times effective. Unfortunately, yelling, which I do sometimes and which I don't feel proud about doing, is sometimes effective. The last time I yelled, I remember this was a week ago and it was bedtime and they were like, I was trying to calm them down and they were being goofy and they weren't listening and it went on longer and longer and I got exasperated uh, and I, I got tired of telling them to calm down and, and eventually... Um, I, I snapped. I like, I said, Eliza in a, in a way that was loud enough to cut through what they were doing and it worked. It stopped her from doing what she was doing. It completely changed her mood and, and she felt bad and she started doing the thing that I needed her to do, like putting on her pajamas or whatever it was. And it worked because it made her afraid. It, the the reason it worked is because it was loud enough that she was startled and then she saw me looking cross and and that was frightening to her and and the fear response overwhelmed the exuberant happy playful silly mischievous thing that she was doing do i feel good about that no that fucking sucks that's bad that's a bad thing to do as their father i don't want to make her afraid and i don't want to like get her to do what I want her to do at that moment through inspiring fear. That's not my goal as a parent. Uh, but to say that it wasn't like the quickest route to the result that I thought I wanted right at that moment would be would be a lie because it was. And it did in the narrow sense work, although in the larger sense, it made me feel shitty about myself. Well, I think that there is a long term. I mean, I, I it's hard with yelling because it's such a tried and true parenting technique. And so it may sound on some level. I mean, I was raised with a lot of yelling and and not only yelling, but like more p perhaps more accurately, the invocation of fear as a motivator. That was a thing I was raised with. That was a thing that every person I know was raised with. That's a thing that parents do. They they when they when they feel it's appropriate, they invoke fear in their kids in order to gain compliance. The question becomes, how good of judges are we of when it's appropriate? And I think that over the years, I have learned that I don't trust myself to be as good a judge of when it's appropriate as I like to think. And and um, I, I think like if you just take it, if you remove it from its cultural kind of like normality the idea that adults use fear to motivate kids sounds bad <laughs> if sounds you just really remove bad. it if you just remove it from like the fact that everyone does it it just sounds bad why should we make kids afraid why is that a thing that we the people who they are supposed to um, love and trust the most in the world and feel the safest with why do we use making them afraid as a way to motivate them and I understand that why I understand why we do it because we run out of options and we need things to be done and blah 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 and so on and so forth and um, and so I get it and people always do that the one invocation people always use is well matters of safety my kid runs into the street and I'm going to grab him by the arm and say no and yell and they're going to be scared and I think that in matters of safety it's understandable because you're dealing with matters of physical safety but I think in matters of come to the table or do your homework or clean your room. 
I think it's I think it's harder to make a cogent argument for why trying to frighten for why a big adults frightening little kids is like a meaningful and appropriate way to go about it. And that said, knowing a couple things, one is that everyone I know was raised that way, myself included. And secondly, that I have done that. Um, and so then the next problem becomes, well, if, if not that, then what? And that's where I don't fully have the complete answer to. <laughs> I think it is really hard to to Kim, this get is the everything. moment where our podcast is going to disappoint you, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is really hard to get everything you want out of kids if you don't use fear as a thing. But maybe I'm going to throw out I'm going to throw out two things. One is that that question is actually a really important question that I think might be the primary question of parenting, which is well, if I'm not going to like dominate and nag and scold and complain my kids into compliance, what then do I have? And I think actually that's a really important and valuable parenting question. And I also think that um, that uh, that the second thing about that is that maybe you're not supposed to make your kids do everything you want all the time. Like maybe our expectations for like child compliance, uh, maybe they're out. Maybe they're actually not super healthy. And again, I say that knowing that historically that's been the ultimate measure of everything is how much can you make your child do what your child is supposed to do. Even in what I shared in like the triumphs and fails, my daughter did something kids aren't supposed to do. The parents came to me and said, why did your daughter do this thing that you're not supposed that she's not supposed to do? Get your daughter in line. You're supposed to do that as a parent. And we felt that Well, we're supposed to get our daughter in line. She didn't do what she's supposed to do. Why? You know, but like. But, like, I think that there is perhaps there may be more nuance to that idea than, you know, than. And so um, so I think that this letter writer is saying for a fact she wants to stop yelling. And that's her question. She isn't questioning whether or not yelling is good or isn't good, which we can debate about ad infinitum. She's asking the question of how can she stop yelling? Because she's decided it's not good for her. It's not good for her kids. It makes her feel shitty. It's bad for her personal, spiritual health, her parenting health, her mental health. She doesn't like it. And for that, I would say as a as both Joe and I are recovered yellers, I think she would say, I think she would agree because she and I have talked so much about this. I think that Rebecca's right. It really has to be a cold turkey thing. It really has to be a thing that yelling is is like off limits period point blank doesn't mean that you're always going to 100 percent live by that you are going to have emotional slips and relapses into the parenting of anger and aggression but that those are to be held as like i lost control i slipped into something that i don't want to slip into i probably owe my kids an apology i probably need to take a break i probably need to owe my partner an apology and i probably need to do figure out what led up to this so i can deal with it better next time was i irritable because I was hungry? Was I super scared because I was thinking about something else? Was I worried about this thing at work? Was I, did I really need to take a nap? What are the other factors that lead me to this point where I have this break in emotional clarity and emotional, uh, this break in emotional sobriety or whatever? Like that's the thing that I think that making yelling off limits leads into those questions. And I think those are the healthy questions of parenting. That's exactly right. That's and that's that's exactly right. And that's exactly what I do when I have when I have yelled or when I have felt I always want to talk about it afterwards. And I always want to apologize. And then ultimately, my kids always end up apologizing to me saying, like, you know, I was right. I well, I was kind of a dick and I'm really sorry. Right, but right, I'll tell right. you, I, it, it really helps. I mean, this is like this is, the, this is the thing you have to remember. The reason I was able to go cold turkey is this. I had just gotten divorced and mm-hmm. it was very, very clear to me. Yeah. And like the thing that I was really top of mind around was that like. Like, 
The relationships you have with everybody in your entire adult life are modeled after the ones your parents taught you to have, mm-hmm. period. Your relationship with your mother is the rela- the first relationship you will ever have with a woman your whole life, and every relationship you have with women the rest of your life will be in some way influenced by that relationship you have with your mother. Same with your father. Same with watching your parents interact with each other. And in that moment, I was just like, I just left a house where for many years there was a lot of volatility and blow-ups and emotion, and I do not want my kids to live this way, and I don't want them to grow up and have relationships that include that dynamic. So for mm-hmm. me, there was like some added incentive. So when I, when mm-hmm. I say just go cold turkey and I'm like, oh, that should be easy, it was hard, but I had more like uh, incentive in the moment that made it easier You just said, but if you remember those things, like this is how they learn communication. This is how they learn relationships. This is how they learn to deal with conflict. This is how they learn to get what they want from other people. If you don't want yelling to be how they do this later when they're adults, then you can't show them that that is the thing to do. Mm. This all seems right to me. I want to, I have two strategies for like getting kids to do stuff that you want them to do without yelling. I don't know that they're going to like change your life around. And, and I think the exerting willpower and refusing to allow yourself to yell is really the main thing you need to do here. Um, but here's a couple of things that we sometimes do and that when we do them, they, they sometimes work some of the time. Um, one of them is, especially with the younger kid, with the four-year-old, um, that is a kid who is not in control of very much. That is a kid whose life is mostly determined by other bigger, more powerful beings than, than him. Uh, and, and as much as you can give that kid a choice or give him control over his own destiny, even if only in a small way, if you can try and do that throughout the day, it makes him more likely to give in on the other stuff. Like let him pick what mm. shoes he's going to wear or something stupid mm-hmm. like that. And, and like really foreground the fact that like that's his decision and like that. It helps. Just give them some feeling of autonomy and, and, and they can live with all of the constraints that they live under a little easier. The second one is we had a thing where like the way we disciplined them was going to be like taking away privileges. Like you don't get a video. You, get, you sure. don't get to watch a video and if you don't cooperate or whatever. And I got that boiled down to like, okay, I'm going to count down from five. And if I get to zero, then you lose a privilege. And it's probably a video, but maybe it's some other thing. Maybe it's dessert. Who knows what it is. And if you do it in a very serious way, sometimes you can just say like, okay, five. And when I do that, my kids sometimes stop what they're doing. Like when I say the number five, and and it's probably fear as well, unfortunately, but it, they're not afraid that I'm going to hurt them or scream at them. They're afraid I'm going to take away their video. Um, and it, it feels nicer to me to be able to just say a number and in, in a serious but not angry way and have them like hop up off the couch and, and do what I need them to do. And when they do, then it's like, great, you did it. I hadn't even gotten to three. It's all good. If you do it, you did it before I got to one. That's great. There's nothing, there's no problem here. Everything, everybody's doing what they're supposed to do. And we only have a problem if you let me get down to zero and then I have to take away something that you value. Um, it's a form of discipline that feels less awful than yelling to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it also goes back to that control thing because you're giving them an opportunity to make a decision. That's right. About whether or not they want to go down the loss of privilege consequence route or not. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, give it a try. Hope it's helpful. But I think the main thing is like, if you don't want to be yelling anymore, then that's on you. Don't yell anymore. 
All right. Let's take another question. Uh, this one came to us by email. You could send us an email as well. Mom and dad at slate.com. Uh, this email is being read for us by Slate's TV critic and the host of the fabulous Decoder Ring podcast, Willa Paskin. Dear mom and dad, so my nine-year-old son made a mean joke about his teacher's appearance, weight specifically on the playground. It got back to her. I'm so disappointed, and not just because I've struggled with my weight. His teacher is wonderful and wants to treat this as a teachable moment, teaching him that you never know who's listening and where that information can go. But that doesn't seem like the biggest lesson. Should I focus on reminding him being different is okay, that fat isn't a terrible thing, that being kind is better than being funny? I'm mortified. Any other suggestions? He's usually an empathic, kind kid, but clearly not today. Thanks. Yeah, this is not dissimilar to what to what I shared about in the Triumphs and Fail section, which is when your kid does something that is objectively awful and socially recognized that it's awful, and you're like, oh, not my child, not my beautiful, empathic, like wonderful child. I can't believe they did something so horrible. And I think one of the ways of peeling back the layers of this, I mean, there's two, there's two distinct parts of this question that I hear, and one of them is like, you know, this is sort of implied in the subtext, but I would remind this mother that there isn't, your kid being empathic and wonderful and also making of joke about his teacher's weight, are those aren't uh, mutually exclusive things. Kids are trying stuff out. It's maybe the one thing, like, mantra to always have in mind when you're dealing with kids. They're trying stuff out. They're seeing what happens if they make a fat joke and everyone laughs. And what if they, what if I was the kind of person who went around doing that? I've seen that on TV. I've seen that character. What if I was that kind of guy? That seems interesting. Would I get what people like me a lot? Would I get a lot of like, would I feel better? You know, they're trying stuff out. And so one of the ways that they learn the answers to their questions, what would it be like if I did this, is through the consequences that result. They do it and then they get the experience of what results. And so, um, the, I mean, I kind of was talking about this before when we were talking about divorced kids, parent, children of divorce saying really mean things to their parents like, I just need a better mother or why are you so frivolous with money? And, um, and I think that one of the things that, about that is that we tend to conflate as parents like the impact with intent with kids. I think with adults, you actually should do that. I think with kids, it's not so simple. I think kids are just learning that stuff is powerful, but they don't know how to wield the power yet. And so they do things that are way off the charts. And so sometimes when kids do things that are objectively cruel and hurtful, it doesn't mean those kids are perhaps cruel and hurtful. It means they're learning what is and isn't going to happen if they do stuff that they've seen done. So that's the first thing. So I would relax a little bit about whether or not your empathic kid is or isn't empathic in this moment. He is. He's still a fine kid. He just, just tried this thing. And so the second thing I think is that um, the, the answer to your question is sort of all of it. It's fine that your teacher wants to treat this as a moment of like you never know what the consequences are going to be to a decision you make, which is, again, like the same thing that we were talking about with Georgia and that we've gone over multiple times with Ezra. That that is a it seems to me from what I've watched, that is a big thing with growing up is you think you're making a decision based on this set of consequences. You don't even think about this other potential set. And so part of what we do as parents, and this is what sounds like what your teacher is trying to do, is say these are some other consequences that you didn't even think about. This is why you have to be careful. But it's not just that. Also, you need to teach him that not that being different is OK. I don't know that that's the wording I would use, but that uh, all the stuff that there is to know about why it is that we don't make jokes about people's bodies. And I think maybe it helps. I always say you can't teach something that you don't truly know and live. And I think it kind of helps to, for you to understand truly why it is 
that we don't do that. Not that, and it's the answer isn't because people don't like it or it hurts people's feelings or it's bad or it's embarrassing or we're not, you know, with this, it makes people frown upon you. I mean, those are all part of it, but there are other bigger reasons that people don't have a choice a lot of times about the way their body looks and that there's a lot of systemic oppression of people who have body shapes of different types and this is the way some of that stuff and so people get treated as less than humans because of the way their bodies are shaped and looked and that ties in, and that's also has to do with race and gender and orientation and that it's it's part of a big thing that our culture does and so when you make a joke about a person's physical appearance you're not just making a joke to make people laugh. You're also taking part in this collective harming that we do. And we're trying to not do that shit anymore. And it's really important. <laughs> you know, what I mean? it's not fair. It's not cool. It's not kind. It's not right, plain and simple. And I think that getting really clear on that for yourself will help you um, communicate that to your kid, which you will do over time. Because I guess the last big thing I always think about with kids is we always as parents want to parent by putting out the fire in the moment. Like my kid just did this horrible thing or I just discovered this thing happened. How can I make it stop immediately? I need to throw water on the fire right now and have it never think, you know, like sort of flare up again. But I think that a lot of it actually is that you sort of become aware of what your kid knows, what they're wrestling with, and then you kind of play the long game. Okay, this kid is going to need more discussion and more conversations and to explore this idea further. And so we're going to be doing that over the next three weeks, five weeks, six months, year. Right. We're going to be talking about it. It's going to, I'm going to find ways to work it into conversation. It's going to be coming up when we watch movies together. I'm going to be bringing it up that you're setting a, a, an environment for your kid that is in line with the values that you're teaching and that that's really the game. It's not so much like I need to have one thing to say to them right now that will make this behavior get fixed. It's you sort of take it in that, OK, this is a behavior that exists. This is something my kid is learning. Let me like sort of address that as we go forward in, in like our time together. That seems really smart to me. I, I, I think one way of, of putting what Carvel just said is the teacher is going to teach this kid about consequences. Like this is not the first time that this teacher has heard a kid making a joke about her body. It just isn't. Mm. And, and she knows how to handle it. And she's going to handle it by showing him that actually the result that you get from this thing you tried, you tried being the funny guy making a joke about the teacher's weight, and, and the result you get is she's going to make you feel a little embarrassed. She's going to talk to you in a way that's not going to, it seems like it's not going to be mean. It's not going to be angry. It's not going to be vengeful. It's just you're going to end up feeling embarrassed about what happened. And that's what you're going to carry with you as the, like, your, what happened to you the time you tried to be the funny guy who made the weight joke. And that's a helpful bit of feedback for this nine-year-old kid to get when he tried this, right? That's going to, in the short term, that's a useful result. And you, the parent, are going to teach the kid values. And you can't teach the kid values by, like, sitting them down and giving them a stern lecture, right? Values are not, like, a very special episode of different strokes. Values are a thing that has to inform everything that goes on in your house the whole time. And um, as Carvel said, that's the long game. First of all, I disagree. Values are a very special episode of Different Strokes. No, I'm just kidding. They're not. But that was a great reference. Um, I, I loved what you said, Carvel. And this is this is kind of what I was trying to get to at the beginning of the show. I didn't quite hit it. But like we hear so many questions and we hear so much around parenting about 
uh, nice versus mean, you know, hurting people's feelings. What we don't talk about enough is right versus wrong. We don't talk about mm. that enough because I think mm. there's something around the, the language about feelings and not hurting people and being a nice person and an empathetic person and a caring person that feels so much more within our grasp. But, you know, you don't tell your kids don't tell a racist joke because you hurt you're going to hurt somebody's feelings. You tell your kids don't right. tell a racist joke because it's wrong. And why don't we use that same thinking around other things they do that are just wrong or things or behaviors that they try that are just not in line with the values of right and wrong that we live by and that we want them to live by? I do think those messages stick. I think they last longer. I think that they uh, get in deeper. I think that they can take longer to get to. And that, you know, that conversation about right and wrong, it's not going to happen in one conversation. It's got to be a conversation that's constant, just like the other conversations you have about things like consent and things like privilege and things like uh, all the other sort of long game moments that we find ourselves faced with. But yeah, I think the way to frame this is, you know, your teacher told me, you know, what happened? I, I understand you guys are talking about how that got back to her. And I'm sure that was very embarrassing. But I also want to talk to you about not about hurting people's feelings, but about why it's wrong. Why this is a something that 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 you, that you don't say because it's wrong to say, not because it hurts people's feelings, because it's actually wrong. So I really like that, and I I think that that's that would be the direction I would take too if I were this mom. All right, not a lot of controversy in our responses to this, email, <laughs> but uh, thanks very much for writing in. <laughs> it's time now for that part of the show. Um, we call it. We call it, what do we call it? We call it <laughs> recommendations. That's right. Oh. It's the time when we recommend things to you. Rebecca, what are you going to recommend? I've got a recommendation for uh, parents of older teens. I may have recommended this the first time it came around, but I'm doing so again. I am recommending American Vandal Season 2 to watch with your older teens. Um, And I say older because, you know, there's language stuff, there's thematic stuff. Uh, The second season, however, of American Vandal, the first season, as you may know from Netflix, was about a mystery, uh, the... Conceit, of course, was two high school kids making a student film project trying to solve who drew the dicks on teachers' cars. This year, it's about a series of poop pranks at a different high school. Um, This year is more nuanced, more grounded. I think it takes on the, the reality of teen life more. There is no show to me, that does it better than American Vandal, something that is greatly misunderstood about teenagers today is their understanding of their world, their acceptance of different kinds of people in their life, their sort of understanding of larger themes uh, around community and around race and around difference. This show really provides that lens in a way that's super smart and very funny, and there's a mystery, and there's one storyline in particular that I love around a star basketball player that brings up a lot of super interesting social issues around uh, amateur athletes and race and the way that these students are, are treated by institutions of higher learning and their peers. And uh, it is a super, super good season of American Vandal season two. And I've really had a good time watching it with my teenagers. And it's inspired all sorts of cool conversations. So I would check it out if you're if you're the kind of parent who doesn't mind uh, sex references, drug references, uh, swearing and a lot of. Uh, jokes about shit like you should watch this show with your teenage kids nice yeah i am going to recommend a book called the hoboken chicken emergency which is a book 
probably for fourth graders, third, fourth, maybe. Uh, it's an old book. I think it was written in like 1970-something. And then I think they even made a TV show about it that in the 80s that was not very good in the mode of a lot of 80s animation. But The Whole Book and Chicken Emergency is a very funny little book about um, uh, someone's supposed to get a, go get a turkey for Thanksgiving, but they mistake this giant chicken for a turkey, and then the chicken grows and grows, and then it, it terrorizes the town of Hoboken, uh, and people think it's a gorilla. They, it's kind of a King Kong situation. Hilarity ensues. Ha, 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 ha. Um, the, there's new illustrations by an artist named Jill Pinkwater. They've been updated. It looks really good. It's a very silly book. It is old school in the sense that it's not maybe as, I don't know, politically correct is the word, but like they're a lot meaner to the chicken. Part of what happens in the book is that as people become more and more afraid of the chicken, they become meaner and meaner to her. And then finally the sort of, there's sort of like one kid who's like, but wait a second, what about her feelings? And then she, and then people sort of are nicer to her and then she becomes nice to them and it turns into a sort of Clifford the Big Red Chicken situation. And, um, uh, but it's just a delightful book and it's funny and it's hilarious and it does get to some discussions about morality and how we treat people that we think don't fit in with the rest of us. And although I don't know that that's fully the intent, I think the intent is really just like in, in the mode of many older books just to have silly things that make kids giggle. And this book does it. It's The Whole Book and Chicken Emergency uh, by Daniel Pinkwater, uh, 1977. Uh that's great. Can I just say that Daniel Pinkwater was my favorite author from the ages of like eight to twelve? I was really? like, a, yeah, huge Pinkwater fan. Lizard music what else was my favorite. Write? Lizard music, which I I, I revisited uh-huh. and it doesn't quite hold up, but I, I loved I it at the time. Alan Mendelssohn, The Boy from Mars, was a great one. I think oh the fir- yeah. The first yeah, one yeah. I read was Wingman, which is about a Chinese boy who makes up a super a Chinese superhero. Really yeah. funny and imaginative, and and a terrific novelist. Um, yeah. I don't I don't remember Hoboken Chicken Emergency, but I bet it's great. Um, the 70s were an interesting time for children's books. They, <laughs> they were a little were. bit wild. People were still a little bit high. And yes. so they were doing some weird shit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was really good. <laughs> the 60s had kind of penetrated into children's book publishing. Exactly. Oh. <laughs> good time. Um, all right. I'm going to recommend uh, something that we watched on our sick day on on Monday. We watched the first couple episodes available on iTunes and on uh, Amazon Prime Video. The first couple episodes of Superman the Animated Series, um, mm-hmm. which is the cartoon version of Superman from the early 90s. And the first two episodes tell the story of Superman's origin on Krypton and coming to America and being uh, adopted by the nice Kansas couple and discovering his powers. And it's just a like a really well done, straightforward retelling of the Superman story. And if you, like me, find yourself wading through zillions of different versions of things, this is a version that has some integrity and and some heart. Um, the cool. one you search for, if you search for Superman, you'll find a zillion different Superman cartoons. Some of them are super old, and your kids will be like, "What the hell is this?" And some of them are like super modern, <laughs> and you'll be like, "This is basically pornography." But the sweet spot, <laughs> the sweet spot, is the one called. Superman the Animated Series. Check it out. This was a this was a '90s one, like along the line of Batman the Animated Series. Yes, exactly. It's by the it's made by the same people. It has that same sort of Neo Deco style of drawing. Those were the those were a re- that was a really good run. Yeah, of, really. They really did hit the sweet spot with both those shows. That's true. Totally it was Batman was great. Yeah, really good. Yeah. 
All right, and that's our show. Uh, if you have a question that you would like us to address, you can call us at 424-255-7833, uh, or you can email us at slate.com. You can discuss this episode or any other episode or really anything else parenting-related by going to Facebook and searching for Slate Parenting. You'll find our lively and active Facebook group where other parents just like you but different are sharing triumphs and fails, asking for recommendations, uh, and uh, giving one another advice. Our show is produced by Benjamin Frisch. For Carvel Wallace and Rebecca Lavoie, I'm Gabriel Roth. We'll see you next week.